Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Followers podcast, we're in the book of Acts. We're going to be starting in chapter 7. Stephen preaches to the council and the trial. Let's open with a word of prayer. Leslie, please. Lord, thank you for this time we have together and for the opportunity of learning your word and for the great witnesses, the cloud of witnesses we have of the early Christians that uh, stood for you and for the gospel. We pray that we can follow in their footsteps and uh, glorify your name. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Good evening, Mark. Well, it's good to be with everyone again. We've been looking at the book of Acts, and we've been looking at several themes that are not uh, mentioned in most churches in the United States uh, as we look at the book of Acts. But we're seeing in it the systematic restoration of Israel as had been promised through all of the Hebrew prophets. And back in Acts 1, Jesus still appearing to them in a bodily form before he kind of translated himself into the spiritual realm, he told them that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. And we're seeing this carry out chapter 6 and 7 will be kind of the hinge where this plan will pivot from the first two phases into the second two, the Samaria and the rest of the world. And what we've seen is that everything is going exactly according to plan. What we have not seen are any apologies or excuses for the failure of God's promises to Israel to materialize when they were expected to there in the first century. This makes our dispensational and Christian Zionist uh, friends not only wrong, but it it makes their whole religious system uh, ludicrous when compared to to scripture. And now Stephen has been arrested up till this point. The Judean leadership has been really annoyed by these pesky followers of Jesus uh, who they had executed and, and swept out of the way. And they threatened and they beaten his uh, followers. But now they have one of them who's been singled out and arrested for teaching that Jesus would change the customs and laws of Moses and would destroy the temple. And the charges have been laid at him here in chapter 6. And now in chapter 7, 
the high priest asks, are these things so? And now we are going to get to uh, hear Stephen's defense, as it is called. It is not a defense in the sense of someone trying to be acquitted of a crime. It is a defense in the sense of defending Jesus Christ as the prophet and as the Savior of Israel. And so let's look at what Stephen has to say here before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. Uh, We can read 1 through 10. The high priest asked whether the charges were true. To this Stephen replied, My brothers, fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was still in Mesopotamia and before he settled in Haran. God said to him, Leave your country and your kinsfolk and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After his father died, God made him move from there to this land where you now dwell. God did not give him any of it as his heritage, not even a foot of land, but he promised to give it to him and his descendants after him as a possession, although he had no child. These are the words God used. Abraham's posterity will be strangers in a foreign land and they will be subject to slavery and oppressed 400 years but I will judge that nation which they serve God said and after that they will worship me in this place God then made a covenant of circumcision with him and Abraham who had become the father of Isaac circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac did the same for Jacob and Jacob for the twelve patriarchs. Out of envy, the patriarchs sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his tribulations. He granted him favor and wisdom in the court of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him the governor of Egypt and of Pharaoh's entire household. Great. Thank you very much. All right. So Stephen addresses these men as brethren and fathers. He pays homage to them as leaders of the tribes and the family of Israel. He's not unnecessarily rude, in other words. And he begins with Abraham, the the patriarch of Israel originally. And he recounts the story that Abraham was living presumably comfortably or peacefully or satisfactorily at least over in Mesopotamia, present-day Iraq, uh, down probably in the southeastern part of the country. And God appears to him. Uh, This is a few generations after the flood of Noah and the Tower of Babel, which happened uh, in that vicinity as well when the nations uh, were scattered into different parts of the world, different languages, and so on. And he's told to get up from this where he lives and from all of his family and to go to a land that I will show you. And he left. That's the key thing. When God asked him to do it, he did it. Abraham is known as the father of the faithful, and his faith is uh, used as uh, a high standard that we could all compare ourselves to. I don't like to use the word faith because 
it uh, televangelists have given it kind of a weird, uh, you know, meaning that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But I just use the word confidence as a rough equivalent of what we would use in ordinary conversation, not of a religious nature, perhaps. But Abraham had absolute confidence in God. So when God told him to do something, he obeyed without question. And he got up and left behind everything and traveled far away into a place where folks would have spoken a different language. And, I mean, it would have been impossible to ever go back and see a lot of his relatives ever again. I don't think Stephen is just saying this because he likes history. He is quoting throughout his speech here from the Greek Bible, the Septuagint, translated in Alexandria by a team of 70 uh, scholars 260 years before this or something. And he has a commanding knowledge of the Greek scriptures. He's one of the seven, recall, of the, of the Hellenist Judeans, the Greek-speaking Judeans, who remained in Jerusalem after a Pentecost to bond with and become part of this new, newly restored Israel. So he is speaking from the Greek scriptures here, we can tell, and he has commanding knowledge of it. It's just flowing. The parts of it that, that he uh, wants to refer to are just coming out. We know that he was a man full of the, the special gifts of the Spirit, and he is recapping Scripture here with, uh, with great power. In fact, uh, that's another theme we've noticed as we go through the book of Acts, the four Ps, the power, uh, preaching, persecution, and perusia, the promised coming of uh, Jesus or presence, uh, the future manifestation where he would make his presence known to the Judean nation and the whole world. So those four Ps are going to be in evidence throughout this uh, talk, but he certainly... Uh, he's speaking to great scholars of the law, and here's someone who's not a, uh, you know, a religious leader who is spouting out the scriptures with great power. So he's preaching with power right here. And we see this idea that Abraham was willing to leave behind the old ways and do what God told him. The parallel should be obvious to us. The Judeans are being asked, I mean, we go right back to Acts 2 and Peter's sermon, Acts 3, Peter's sermon. They're being told to leave the old physical family of Israel in a new spiritual exodus and to be joined to the new spiritual Israel. And we'll see how willing they are. But Abraham was willing. When God asked him to do the unthinkable, to leave behind all that he had known, he did it without hesitation, that they would end up in Egypt, in Egyptian bondage. Egypt isn't mentioned by name, but a strange land, foreign land, a land of a different uh, language, different customs, different gods. God would take his descendants there and bring them into bondage, and they would be treated poorly for 400 years. But after that, this nation would be judged, and of course, that is the plagues that are recounted for us in the book of Exodus. The great power 
by which God brought his people out of Egypt, which was a forerunner of the great power which God would use to bring his people out of Judea and physical Israel. So, again, these things are not being mentioned uh, randomly or accidentally. The people of Israel were in bondage to the law of Moses, just like Israel had been in bondage to sin in Egypt and bondage to the Egyptians. It's all bondage, and God is offering to deliver them out of the bondage. He was back then, and he is right now. So they're intentionally parallel. After that, they will come forth and serve me in this place. So uh, just like Abraham left behind everything he knew, the Israelites who grew up in Egypt, that's all they knew. They would be asked to come out of their, their places and their homes, cross the wilderness, and serve God in another place. They hesitated a little more than Abraham, but he'll get into more detail on that. He gave Abraham, God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. Circumcision was kind of tied into the, to the land promise. It was the idea of cutting off anything unholy so that you could come into the presence of God and be joined with him in his land. And this circumcision covenant is tied into the land promise to Abraham. And it's important in that way. Most scholars see a relationship between the covenant of circumcision and a baptism for us today. But that's, that's another uh, discussion. But circumcision is tied to the people being able to be in God's presence in the promised land. And Isaac followed Abraham and was circumcised, and then Jacob and by implication he was circumcised, and then the twelve patriarchs, who are the the fathers of all the tribes of Israel, the twelve sons of Jacob, who was renamed Israel. So this gives us the history of the patriarchs of Israel, here down through verse 8. The other sons of Jacob were extremely jealous of Joseph, and then sold him into Egyptian bondage. And... You can, you can just see the spiritual meaning and implication of that. Israel had to go down into Egyptian bondage, and Joseph was the forerunner. God was with him and delivered him through many trials. He was left for dead in a hole in the ground. One of his brothers spared his life. Then he uh, serves as a slave and rises up to be the master of one of the most powerful households of Egypt. Then he's falsely accused of adultery, thrown in prison. He probably would have been killed, but his master probably knew that his wife was lying about the accusations against Joseph, and he ended up just with a like a life sentence instead of instant death. And from the low state of a prisoner, he goes to become really the governor of all of Egypt, of the, of the entire Egyptian empire, he had favor and wisdom before Pharaoh and became governor over Egypt and all of Pharaoh's household. All right, let's, uh, if, if there's no other comment, let's go ahead and read uh, verses 11 through 19. 
When famine and great trial came upon Egypt and Canaan, our fathers could find no sustenance. Hearing that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob sent our fathers there on a first mission. The second time, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and his family ties became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent for his father Jacob, inviting him and all his kinsfolk, 75 persons in all. Jacob went down to Egypt and died there, as did our fathers. Their remains were transferred to Shechem and placed in the tomb which Abraham had bought with silver from the sons of Hamor at Shechem. When the time drew near for the fulfillment of the promise made by God to Abraham, our people in Egypt grew more and more numerous until a new king came to power in Egypt who knew not Joseph. This one dealt craftily with our people and oppressed them. He forced our fathers to abandon their infants to exposure so that the people would not survive. All right, thank you. Okay, so we're continuing on with the story of Israel in Egypt. And uh, it's quite interesting. The scholars have their established Egyptian chronology, but there are a lot of Bible scholars who are now questioning the accepted Egyptian chronology. Uh, My good friend Rod Blair of Bakersfield, California, has an amazing presentation where he shows these huge grain storehouses that were dug into the ground at Saqqara, south of Cairo. And I got to see these myself. They They go down and down and down into the ground. And they found huge numbers of sealed jars Uh, full of grain that are still down there. (laughs) And I don't know if they've even uh, got them all uh, exposed yet. But there is the theory going out that Joseph, of course, was given information by God that this famine was coming and that the whole world, the whole known world, would be starving for seven years after seven years of great plenty. And in Egypt, they stored and saved as much food as they possibly could during the seven good years. And so Rod puts all this together and says that basically, with the whole world starving, the whole world would have beat a path to Egypt with all of the wealth they had to barter their gold, anything they had for food. And he believes that the pyramids, the great pyramids, were the result of this incredible transfer of wealth into Egypt. There's nothing like those three or four great pyramids, all of which were started within one generation, one lifetime of 120 years, which was the lifespan of, uh, of Joseph. All of the great solid rock pyramids that are still standing were started uh, at that time. And uh, he believes the pyramids were the result of this great accumulation of wealth, and they served as a beacon because all of these grain storehouses are dug into the ground right next to the pyramids. And the pyramids really? would serve as a beacon for the caravans to come to trade for food. Uh, so it's just a theory. This granary that they're uncovering now is right next to the stepped pyramid at Sakura, which is the first pyramid. It's not pointed like the rest, but uh, all the scholars 
agree that this one was built first, right before they started building the, the, the massive solid stone pointed pyramids a little ways to the north. So anyway, it's just a theory. And again, the accepted archaeo the archaeologists uh, would not accept this or anything that even possibly might prove any part of the Bible to be accurate. They would have absolutely nothing to do with it. But it is an intriguing theory. And of course, there are there are all kinds of inscriptions about the the king's architect, who Mhotep who designed the Great Pyramids and how that he was also the father of medicine and of all healing. And uh, Rod, in his presentation, makes a, a very fascinating case that Joseph was Amhotep. And uh, it's, it's really worth hearing. He has a uh, presentation that he gives to any church that invites him over three to four days, however much time you want to do in the evenings, or we did ours Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday evening, Sunday morning, and Sunday afternoon. But he, anyone that'll pay his expenses, he'll travel there and give his slideshow, and it's it's quite amazing. He covers a lot of more things. He goes all the way from Noah's flood all the way up to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 with photographs, oh. and he's he's just got uh, some amazing material on that. His, his stuff on Sodom and Gomorrah is uh, really fabulous. <laughs> but anyway, well, let's get back to, to the uh, Joseph in Egypt here. And anyway, Egypt accumulated this incredible wealth. And the descendants of Abraham, uh, which are now the 11 of the 12 patriarchs left there in Palestine after they sold Joseph into slavery, they're starving. Their father Israel sends them down to Egypt to trade for food. And it's implied, but not stated, that the first time they went down there, they didn't recognize Joseph. They knew who he was and everything, and, and he, he saw them, but uh, they couldn't recognize him. And that, of course, is a, that's a veiled allusion to the fact that the Judean leadership did not recognize Christ the first time he appeared but they certainly would recognize him the second time he appeared to them. <laughs> uh, which is the theme of the book of Revelation. Revelation 1-7, He shall appear in the clouds, and those who pierced him shall see him. Um, but uh, anyway, the second time that they went down there, they did recognize Joseph. He made himself manifest to them, and that's what perusia means is manifestation, uh, presence, making his presence known. Uh, one of our themes here in the book of Acts. And uh, again, a type typified by the story of Joseph and his brothers, Christ and his brothers, Israel, uh, the spiritual fulfillment of the story of Joseph in Egypt. He let uh, Pharaoh know about his brothers, and Pharaoh then invited his whole family to come down there, and Jacob, who was also Israel, and all of his family, 75 souls, uh, traveled down there to Egypt. And Jacob died there, and Joseph carried his father's body back to Palestine, 
with great pomp and ceremony. Of course, the money was of no object by that point. They, Egypt had basically accumulated all of the wealth of the known world uh, by that time, and that was directly a result of God's working through Joseph. So Joseph had carte blanche. He took a huge military procession, and they took his father's body back to the cave of the uh, the patriarchs, the tomb that Abraham had bought, the price of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. And that there's a huge building that Herod the Great built there, and it's the only one of his buildings that's still intact. And Rod got to go there. I didn't get to go there. But Rod got a Christian Arab cab driver who approached him on the Mount of Olives and said, you know, you're a believer I'll take you anywhere you want to go. <laughs> so, so he took him into places where we certainly couldn't go with the tour group. He took him down there to the Tomb of the Patriarchs, and uh, Rod got some great pictures uh, down there. It's one of many sites there in the West Bank that are and in Israel that are shared by uh, Orthodox Jews and Muslims. And the Tomb of the Patriarchs is split up, and they have kind of joint jurisdiction because it's a very uh, holy site to uh, to both religions. So anyway, that's uh, verse 16. And then, of course, Joseph went back, and then, then that generation died out. Uh, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. They were there for hundreds of years. They became a, a huge nation. And another king, another line of kings, we would say, in Egypt, they, they, they have dynasties, which are lines of kings. And e- ancient Egypt had many different dynasties of kings. So this is presumably a different dynasty who had no allegiance or respect for Joseph or his people at all. And through Egypt. And then they got worried that they were growing so fast that he commanded that all the male children would be destroyed. All right, any any thoughts on this period of history? It doesn't look like God respected the the Pharaoh very much because they don't tell who his name is. <laughs> yeah, of course, Pharaoh is the Egyptian word for king. So, uh, you know, yeah, it's a generic uh, title there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this brings us now to the time of Moses and... Abraham was, you know, symbolic of of what God was going to do eventually. And then Joseph was a great type of Christ as a redeemer of Israel. And now we get to the ultimate type of Christ, or almost maybe the penultimate type in Moses. And so we have the story of Moses beginning in 20, and this is going to go a long way. Let's see. Let's go down through 29, verses 20 through 29, please. It was at this time that Moses was born. He proved to be an exceedingly handsome child. For the first three months, he was reared in his father's house. But afterward, he was abandoned, and Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the lore of Egypt. He was a man powerful in word and deed. When he was 40, he decided to visit his kinsmen, the Israelites. 
Upon seeing one of them maltreated, he went to his aid and avenged the victim by slaying the Egyptian. He assumed that his kinsmen would understand that God was using him to bring them deliverance, but they did not. He appeared the next day while some of them were fighting and tried to reconcile them by saying, Friends, you are blood brothers. Why are you trying to hurt each other? At that, the man who was wronging his neighbor pushed Moses aside. And who has appointed you ruler and judge over us? He said. Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? On hearing this, Moses fled. He took up his residence as an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. All right, thank you. So Moses appeared at this time that God had promised Abraham that uh, after 400 years the people would be uh, delivered up out of Egypt. Moses was the deliverer of God's people and a type of Christ, the deliverer of God's people. Moses, of course, was supposed to be destroyed as a male Israelite child, but his mother and his sister took extra care. They hid him uh, for a long time, and then they made sure that they exposed him in a way that Pharaoh's daughter would see him and rescue him and adopt him. And then Moses' own mother was hired by Pharaoh's daughter to be the wet nurse. (laughs) So uh, it worked out really good. Of course, this was all according to God's plan, which, again, we would take that for granted, except for the fact that so many of our dispensational and Christian Zionist friends and relatives don't believe that God can work a plan, uh, you know, to fruition. But we see all this detailed planning here in raising up Moses, which foreshadowed the detailed planning that would bring Jesus Christ as the Messiah to God's people at exactly the appointed time, which, of course, we've seen all through the Gospel of John, earlier in the Gospel of Luke, and now in the book of Acts, all going according to God's plan. And again, we shouldn't even have to mention that, but we have so many misguided millions of uh, people who call themselves Christians who uh, don't believe God can execute a plan successfully, uh, which is beyond shameful uh, to me, but uh, it is what it is. So Moses rose from a slave to being one of the highest officials in the royal family. And one thing about Egypt, it's always been a multicultural country. There were black people that lived just to the south of Egypt in Nubia, Sudan, Ethiopia. And those people came down the Nile River. And then people from all over the world would come in to the Nile Delta. So Egypt was a multicultural country that accepted people of all different skin colors all throughout recorded history and was a melting pot kind of like the United States is today. We see in the hieroglyphs and all this inscriptions, we see black Egyptians, we see light-skinned Egyptians, we see Egyptians of kind of a medium skin tone, and really it's about the same as the the modern-day 
population of Egypt in, in terms of the genetics, uh, they say. So the fact that a Hebrew who was originally of, you know, present-day Iraq uh, in terms of his uh, blood would be adopted into the Egyptian family, that's, that's not really unusual. But Moses rose up from slavery to the highest levels of Egyptian society. Uh, a male in that position would have received all kinds of military training and would have been an officer. Of course, he would have received all kinds of other schooling as well. He would have been one of the most highly educated persons in the world at that time. So that was the first 40 years of his life. And then he decided to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Again, no doubt his sister and his mother had told him who he was. He probably didn't advertise the fact that growing up there in the court of the king of Egypt, but he, he knew where his roots lie, and he did go and visit uh, his people. He happened to see one of them being beaten by an overseer, and he struck and killed the Egyptian overseer who had beaten the Israelite. He didn't think anyone had seen him, but he found out uh, the next day, one of the Israelites said, oh, are you going to kill me now just like you killed the Egyptian? So Moses expected to be greeted as a savior once his brethren figured out that uh, he had killed this Egyptian and the word got out, but they did not recognize him as a deliverer sent by God. And that's in verse 25. So you can clearly see the parallel Stephen is making. Joseph wasn't recognized by his brethren now Moses is not recognized by his brethren. Jesus was not recognized by his brethren as the deliverer sent by God. They did not understand. And in fact, as this event is recounted where he tried to break up two Israelites that were fighting and uh, the guy said, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Would you kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So this is exactly the sentiments of the council, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the priests, and so on. Jesus comes in there acting like he knows everything. And, you know, they want to know, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? And so the parallels here, again, are not random. They're not incidental. <laughs> they are intentional as Stephen is speaking by the Spirit of God's direction and guidance here. Moses fled at the saying and became a sojourner in the land of Midian, which again is probably Saudi Arabia, where Mount Sinai is. But we'll, we'll have to save that for next week. Uh, any final thoughts or comments on the life of Moses down to this point? Mark, it's a shame to have to cut this in parts, but I see why you do, because it's very long. And I don't think most of us were aware of it. Stephen was actually uh, actually had a discourse in the book of Acts that was uh, reproduced there. And can you give us a little preview of what's, what's going to happen to Stephen after he finishes this explanation to the crowd well, he's speaking to? It's, uh, it's not good. It's pretty violent. This is actually one of the longest sermons recorded in the Bible. It's not maybe the longest, but it's one of the two or three longest recorded in the Bible. So it is quite long here, the, uh, most of the seventh chapter of Acts. And the story that Stephen is relating is not going to be well received in terms of the obvious application, which is not lost on the council 
who did conspire to have Jesus of Nazareth unlawfully executed. And uh, at the end, uh, Stephen is going to be extremely blunt. Uh, he is not making a speech that would result in his acquittal. He is making a speech that is going to result in the condemnation of his accusers. He is going to appeal to a higher court, and he's going to reveal the verdict of that higher court to that court who would dare pass sentence on him. He will pay a physical price, but uh, he's not too worried about it. That's, that's kind of a preview without giving it all away. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you, Mark, right. and that was another excellent study. We'll look forward to the next installment. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.